Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money, to understand the stock market better and look at the factors that make it go up and down, to review financial legislation that could impact the laws around your money. In the Plan Your Prosperity section, we look at different financial planning topics in detail to try to help you understand them just a little bit better. And then finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, that's your opportunity to ask me a question. So you can go to my website, askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and if you go to the contact page, that'll give you a place to type in a question, and then maybe I can answer it on the air for you. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update, and this is for the week ending 2-15-2019. And it was a really great week in the market. The Dow Jones Industrial Average um, went up 3.09%. The S&P 500 climbed by 2.5%. The NASDAQ went up 2.39%. Even gold went up 0.52%. Oil was the big winner for the week, with oil march crude up 5.84%. You may have noticed that at the gas stations. And then finally, in the bond market, the 10-year Treasury yield is currently at 2.67%, and that yield went down just a tiny bit last week. It's down 1.93%. So what factors made last week such a great week in the market? Remember, if you were listening to the show the week before, I said we've just been hovering around the 200-day moving average, and we had climbed above it, and then we had dipped down below it last week when I was taping, and this week we are definitely above the 200-day moving average. I think a lot of the reason for that is just simply a little bit of market stability. It doesn't look like um, we're going to have a government shutdown. In fact, they signed everything on Friday that guaranteed that the government's going to stay open. I think that the next big fight, which is the debt ceiling, I would be very surprised if they shut down the government then as well because it was so unpopular and everybody was so angry about it. The reason the government shutdown matters to the market is it was causing the GDP, the gross domestic product, to go down just a little bit for every week that the government was closed. 
There was even some fear that if the government stayed closed down much longer than it did before it reopened, it could cause first quarter GDP for 2019 to go to zero because so much drag was on the market with not only the people who were the government employees being out of work, but then all of the contractors and all of the service and support people for that group of people. And then additionally, it just kind of set people on edge. So they weren't spending as much as they had been. They weren't eating out. Even people whose jobs weren't affected were kind of tightening their belts a little bit. And that's always a really bad thing for GDP. So with that being averted with the um, House and the Senate and then the president signing the bill that kept the government open, that's all been kind of put on the back burner. I understand that um, the emergency is probably causing some stress for people, but the defense building a wall, none of that is really going to have much of an impact on the market I don't think. Now, you might hear an analyst who says that it does, but I'm really trying to think. It looks like um, this emergency resolution is probably going to get tied up in court pretty quickly. So there isn't going to be a lot of imminent domain of land being seized to build a wall next week. And so I really think the market doesn't think anything's going to happen. And I think it figures that if it does happen, it'll just be a little bit of shuffling money within the Department of Defense to build a little bit of wall. If it did anything, it could cause like the manufacturing sector to go up a little bit. It could cause materials to go up a little bit. If there really was suddenly a huge building project on the southern border, so I suspect if everything stays where it is, it's a market-neutral event, probably not have a lot of impact. So hopefully we can get just a little stability under us and keep the markets going in a good direction. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman, for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update and the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today I want to talk a little bit about a proposal out of Nevada about the fiduciary standard. You know that there have been issues nationally with what the fiduciary standard means, and the Department of Labor is supposed to be coming out with something along about the same time as the SEC, but everything is very vague. Everything is very unclear right now. So a lot of states have said, you know what, we are not going to let the federal government just drag their feet on this we're going to pass our own laws on what it means to be a fiduciary. Now, in minor deference to the other side of this issue, I will admit that there could ultimately be some confusion if you have 50 states with 50 different fiduciary standards. However, I think that given the scope of some of the both legislation that's passed as well as proposed legislation, I think this is going to push the SEC and the DOL in directions that I really like, requiring a higher standard of care on the part of brokers, investment advisors, remember, already have a mandatory fiduciary standard. 
So what it means to be a fiduciary has been slightly vague, but to make it simple in, in words that are easy to understand, it means that the person who is handling your money needs to put your interests ahead of theirs, specifically involving issues of recommending products that aren't more expensive than other equivalent products so that they make more money so that they don't push you into products where there's contests related to them. If you go back to the old DOL regulation that pretty much died at the beginning of the Trump administration, you really have a clear outline of some of the practices that have been pretty outrageous. So there's two magic things to most of these fiduciary rules that I've been seeing. The first is that general statement of, we're going to act in your best interest, not our best interest, and your best interest always comes first. But very, very closely related to that, to me, is the concept of transparency. I think a lot of times that really transparency is easier for clients to understand and if a, a broker or an advisor is being truly transparent, then it's relatively easy for the consumer to figure out what they're doing. So Nevada Security Division has an eight-page regulation, and they're in the middle of a comment period right now. Again, this comment period ends March 1st, and then the state regulatory committee might modify the rule. We're not completely sure when everything's going to go into effect. But the thing about the Nevada rule is it's a little bit stronger than the SEC rule that's getting bandied about right now. According to the Nevada rule, whenever someone is holding themselves out to giving any form of advice at all with your money, then they have to act as your fiduciary. One of the loopholes that they close is the duly registered financial person who is an advisor sometimes and a broker sometimes. And the problem with this dual registration is the advisor side has the fiduciary standard. The broker side does not. So they give advice sort of on a fiduciary side, but then when they go to implement it, they switch hats and they put on the broker hat that doesn't have the fiduciary rule. And so then they can charge for products that have like higher commissions than other equivalent products, or they can put you into something where there's a contest related to it. And what Nevada said was, no, absolutely not. There is no fiduciary relief when an advisor puts on their broker hat. So they have to implement their recommendations with the same level of advice that they give their advice at. This doesn't seem like it should be that difficult, but it has been a huge trick of the industry where really you just don't have any idea what hat the person has on at the time that they're doing different things within your financial services package. So basically what it says is anytime that you're giving any form of advice and you're implementing anything, you always have to be a fiduciary.
You also always have to disclose how much money you're getting paid for the advice that you're giving because everyone in financial services gets paid. I mean, an investment advisor likely charges an assets under management so that if you have money with that advisor, they charge a certain percentage of the amount of money that you're holding with them, maybe 1%, maybe 2%, you know, fairly standard industry norms. If you're getting a commission, then that amount of commission has to be disclosed. And I have a funny story about this. I mean, the amount of sort of, we're not going to tell you what's going on in financial services is pretty staggering. I was very new in the business, and I believed in disclosing commissions. And by the way, in some circumstances, the person whose product that you're selling makes it so that you are not allowed to disclose the commission that you've gotten paid. Well, I didn't know about that when I first got in the business, and so I was talking to someone who took commission, and I was talking about that I didn't have an issue with commission as long as the amount was disclosed. And this person said, oh, I can't do that. And I said, why not? And they said, because my clients wouldn't think I was worth that much. And I said, maybe you should do more. And I never had lunch with this person again. And I probably annoyed the tar out of them. And the real problem is I don't remember who I said it to. So someone in my town really doesn't like me. But it's true. If you think you're getting more money than you're worth, maybe you ought to do more. I still wouldn't apologize. I might be a little more diplomatic today, but probably not. In any case, this Nevada rule does give a few carve-outs. So if a client calls and says, hey, I want to buy this. Okay, so then the broker sells them that. You know, I want to buy a certain mutual fund, or I want to buy a bond fund, or I want to buy a stock fund. When the broker is simply acting as a broker between the client who is generating the trade and where those securities are held, then there isn't a fiduciary standard there. But the minute an advisor or broker recommends a fund, the fiduciary standard kicks in. So it will be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm really glad to see this movement again because there for a while, when everything was getting watered down, some of the states gave up. But Nevada is back at it with a vengeance, and I will certainly let you know what's going on and how it progresses and what the final rule looks like. And in the meantime... Always ask your financial professional what they're getting paid for what they're recommending, and that way you can understand what you're paying for. You don't have things that are happening in the back. You don't have things that are happening mysteriously. And then if they don't tell you or they won't tell you, that might tell you something. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today I want to talk about what happens when you sell your home and what are the tax consequences of selling your home. 
but I'm almost certain that I've actually covered this topic again in an earlier show, but I just get questions and I get questions from clients I've had a long time and I get questions from friends that I've known for a long time and I really believe there's enormous confusion about this. So let's talk about how much tax you owe when you sell your house. And the answer, especially if you're listening to me in the middle of the United States, is probably nothing. So let's break that down a little bit. First of all, if a home is your primary residence, and so it can't be a second home, it's got to be the home that you list as your primary residence, and you're not allowed to have two primary residences, and you sell your home, you are allowed to exclude from any sort of capital gain situation $250,000 of gain if you're single and $500,000 of gain if you're married. So if you live in Oklahoma, where this show is broadcasting from, it is really likely, unless you have a huge house, that you're not going to owe any tax at all because it doesn't mean your house is worth $250,000 if you're single. It's actually $250,000 of gain. So if you buy a modest house for $100,000, you'd have to sell it for $351,000 to have any gain on it. Married filing jointly is $500,000. It doesn't matter what you do with the money. There used to be some rules about if you bought a new home, then you could like defer the gain or not have the gain. These rules were in place before I got into the business in 2003, but for a very long time now. If you sell your house, you can do anything you want. So maybe you've owned a home for a long time and maybe you want to buy a travel trailer and you want to travel around the United States for a while. That's totally fine. Now, travel trailers are a depreciating asset. They're not going to make money. That's a whole separate conversation. But from a tax perspective only, the IRS doesn't care what you do with the money. So you can sell your home and use the proceeds to pay for a retirement center. Or you can use the proceeds to pay for a nursing home for an older parent. It doesn't have to go back into property. Now, There are a couple of weird exceptions or um, rules around this, really. And this is where you should talk to a certified financial planner practitioner. You should talk to a CPA. Make sure that if you've recently bought or sold or something is random or you've been in the military or you're disabled, there are a lot of additional rules that might apply to you. I don't want to spend a lot of time in the weeds on the show. So what I'm going to say is you should talk to them in any case. You should really talk to them if it's slightly complicated. For most of us, the place we'll get into trouble the fastest is the use. So let's say that you're single and you've bought a small place and then you get married and you buy a bigger home and you decide to keep your small place as rental property. 
Well, that's fine, but the IRS wants you to have had that home as your primary residence for two of the last five years, which means there's a point in your rental property journey that you're going to have to decide if you want to keep it as rental property or if you want to go ahead and sell it so you can defer the gain. That's a financial planning question, and and I don't get specific on things like that on this show. That's just a decision you need to make. But realize that if it starts out as your home and then you start renting it out, it changes characteristics. It goes from being your primary residence to being a piece of property that is simply rental income. When you own rental property, you do pay capital gain on the sale of the property, and you pay it at a slightly higher rate than you would on ordinary securities capital gain. So you need to think about it, and you need to decide if you want to keep it as rental property and make the income and handle it that way, if you want to go ahead and sell it so you don't have to pay any tax on the gain. So be careful with that, and don't let a lot of time go by. It's two out of five years. You know, fortunately, right now, homes are selling rapidly enough, at least in the United, in the middle of the country, that there's not an issue if you put your home on the market and then it's just not selling. That could get complicated. I would think that that is a conversation, if you're running out of time for some weird reason, you need to talk to your realtor, you need to talk to your CPA, you need to talk to your financial planner. They're going to have to do some very specific planning for you to figure out what you would need to do to keep that from happening. The other place that people get confused is when property is sold because of a divorce. And so there is no tax penalty for dividing the assets. So if one spouse is transferring the property to another spouse, that transfer of property does not create a taxable situation for the spouse that's giving up the property. So in a divorce, generally the IRS kind of stays out of it and they don't force tax consequences as though you had taken a specific action Unless you've gotten an IRA through a divorce settlement, you cash the thing out. That's a completely different topic, but it's not a complete tax-free situation. But generally, if you're acting within the realms of, of not doing something that seems like it would be a bad idea, you're likely okay. So be careful with this, but be aware that assuming that everything is normal, if you have taken a home office, You have to recapture any depreciation. Again, that's a CPA question. So if you've got a home office, that's a CPA. But for most people, they're just selling their house or using the money for whatever. $250,000 or $500,000 is income tax-free gain for you. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and today's question is about target date funds. 
The question is, Peggy, my 401k plan invested my account in something called a target date fund. What is it and why did they do that? So really, to look at this question, we need to break it in half. So I'm going to address the second half of the question first, which is, why did they do that? It used to be that if you had a retirement plan, like a 401k plan at work, then you would have the money that went into your account, and the primary concern was that you didn't lose any money. So if you never made any investment decisions at all in your account, then it stayed in money market. And a money market fund is kind of like a bank account. It might pay just a little bit more interest than a bank account, but not much. So basically, when you had your 401k plan, it was like money in the bank. The problem was there was no growth, and people were reaching age 65, and they'd put money into their 401k plan. They really didn't know what they were doing, because remember, 401k plans are not actually that old. They're kind of a new phenomenon, and they forced a lot of people into the stock market who had never been there before, and they really didn't want to be there, and so they didn't do anything. And so now they're 65 years old. The company doesn't have a pension plan because they opted to go with the 401k. And they have a 401k that's there in cash, but they haven't had any growth. And they don't have nearly enough money to last them for retirement. So they changed the rules and said, we're going to create something called a qualified default investment alternative. Q-D-I-A. And a qualified default investment alternative is a fund that is selected by the people running the plan. This fund is supposed to be something that is age-appropriate and or balanced. So sometimes people choose a balanced fund, kind of just a generic blend of stocks and bonds, as the qualified default investment. That means if you do nothing, you wind up there. So when the money goes into your account, it doesn't stay in cash, it gets invested. Well, they decided, you know, that the balanced fund is fine, but they came up with an investment product called a target date fund. And a target date fund is designed to correspond to the date of your retirement. That's your target date. So if you're very young, your target date is way in the future. If you're older, your target date is closer. And it always assumes that you're retiring at age 65. When you put a qualified default investment as a target date fund, the advantage that you give the employee is more growth when they're younger and safer when they're older, which are just tried and true investment principles that the less time you have, you know, the less risk you want to take. So they can be fairly good investments for clients, especially if clients don't have a lot of money. The problem with, qualif uh, with, um, with target date funds is not every company looks at risk the same way. So some companies' target date funds have clients in a lot of stock when they're 65 because they're looking at a 30-year time horizon until the client is 95. 
Others have a lot of bonds at 65 because the person isn't putting any more money into the account, so they want it to be safer. So if you're in a target date fund, what I want you to do is go in and look at the stock bond mix and then talk to your financial planner and see if that stock bond mix makes sense for your risk tolerance. Make sure that that fund is doing what you think it's doing because that's what's killing people in target date funds. They see it, they see the name, they look at the year, they don't go any further. Look under the hood, see what it's invested in, see if you like it. If the fund is more aggressive than you want, then you can lower the risk by choosing a fund that has a date closer to today. So if you're in a 2035 fund and it's riskier than you want, look at the asset allocation of a 2025 fund. Now you're probably going to have a more conservative allocation. If you want it to be riskier, look at funds that are going further out in the future. Those are going to have more stocks in them. You'll also want to look to see how the fund becomes more conservative over time. That's called a glide path, and you'll be able to get information from the fund company that will explain that to you so that you understand what's going on, so you understand how rapidly does your fund become conservative and how conservative does it get. You know, this isn't a conversation about asset allocation or blended funds and whether or not you want all of your investments in a fund. Those are really different questions. But if you understand the fund, you'll know you're making the decisions that you're making. So I can't believe how fast the time has gone again. So take some time to understand your investments, understand what your financial advisor is doing, and have a great week and be prosperous. Bye. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.